Oh man. Woo. I played 158 holes of disc golf in about 48 hours last week. I was exhausted. <laughs> I needed a break. But I probably had some of the most fun playing disc golf I've had in a long time. 158 holes of golf in what I think math technically, mathematically, however you want to say it technically, I think it would have been like 52 hours. But I'm not 100% certain. I haven't actually added up. But somewhere around the 48-hour mark from Thursday night to Saturday night, uh, a lot of disc golf, 158 holes. And I have a lot more to tell you about that. Hey everybody, what is up? It's Antonio. Welcome to episode 11 here on Teach Play Disc Golf, a Gladiator Disc Golf podcast. I'm so excited for today's episode. Uh, it's a little bit later in the week than I normally like to record, but just some scheduling things didn't work out, but I'm here. I'm happy to be here. I'm ready to record. My stomach's a little upset, but I think we'll be okay. We'll go ahead and uh, we have. I have a really, really fun show planned for you guys today. Uh, planned for you today. Uh, we're going to really t quickly touch on Ricky Waisaki. He gave us another update. We're going to talk about the Gannon and Prodigy resolution. We're going to talk about Kristen Tatar's new rating. And then we will dive into uh, some disc golf questions. Last week's episode, I answered a couple of those questions. And so this week, we're going to continue answering those questions for you. And then after that, we will uh, talk about a really cool mid-range that I started throwing recently. We'll recap the Santa Cruz Masters Cup, and we will preview the OTB Open. I am so excited for today's show, and I hope you are too. If you've been following the show for a while, go ahead and make sure that you like and subscribe and so that you know when the next episode comes out. And if you're on Spotify or Apple, it would mean so much to me if you would leave a review to let other disc golfers out there know that they need to listen to this show too. All right, let's go ahead and let's get right into it. So a couple weeks ago, a few episodes ago, I mentioned that I had a really fun few weeks of disc golf coming up. And so uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, I was in Texas unexpectedly, and I got to play with Matt, and uh, we played a couple rounds of golf, and it was a blast. And then the following weekend, this past weekend, Matt and, uh, and Hitesh, one of my good friends from New Jersey, came to Nashville and we hung out for a couple days and we played a lot of golf to the tune of Matt and I playing 158 holes of golf. Hitesh came in a little bit later than Matt did, so we, he was only, only able to play 128 holes of golf. And I know these numbers because after our final round, we added them up. And so wild and crazy stuff, but it was such a blast. We played a bunch of different courses from uh, more open, friendly courses to more uh, wooded, challenging courses and everything in between. It was so nice showing them around some of the courses here. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And if there's one thing that I learned from this weekend is that my backhand has come around or has come along 
so well, uh, so, so much. I mean, I hardly threw any forehands, mainly because I've been having some shoulder pain that's just not really going away. And I'm trying to work on some things with that forehand. And I think my form has been a little wonky, but I threw mainly backhands and I was scoring really well for me, uh, throwing backhands and getting good distance, good accuracy, good consistency. And as somebody who uh, was forehand dominant for so long, um, I will say that in my experience, the forehand is more physically taxing than the backhand. Now, yes, the backhand has, a, in my opinion, a lot more components involved in the throw. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. But for some reason, the forehand is more physically taxing. You get tired a lot easier. And so, you know, throwing only backhands, yes, I was obviously tired from long days. I mean, we averaged about three to four rounds a day. And so uh, actually we played four rounds a day. Exactly. The final round was a little bit shorter, but we played four rounds each day. Uh, and then Matt and I also played uh, two rounds on Thursday. But in all of those rounds, my backhand, like, yes, obviously fatigue was setting in just general fatigue, but I didn't feel like my arm was about to fall off. And that just tells me like, hey, you're not throwing with your arm. You're getting your body engaged. You're you're using your energy wisely. Obviously, yes, you're in shape too. And so it was just really cool seeing and experiencing these things and just seeing my score reflect that. Even um, with more and more rounds adding up, it was just like, hey, I still feel like I can compete with myself here. I'm not completely pooping the bed kind of thing. Like I'm actually playing well. And so that has just been a really cool journey. Um, I am keeping, I have a couple goals for the next eight weeks in regard to my back end. I'm uh, working on a couple things. And so I have some really cool goals and I will probably, hopefully, if I achieve my goals, I will be making a video about that. Not so much a podcast video, but a more traditional disc golf video like I used to do and a lot of other disc golfers still do. So I'm really excited about that. But I just wanted to share that with you guys. And, um, you know, it was it was so nice playing with some really close friends of mine who are into disc golf and, you know, just showing them courses. So it was really cool. So Hopefully you have a community like that, whether it's friends or family or a local community. Hopefully you have that because it makes disc golf so much more fun when you can go out and enjoy the course with those friends and family. But that's enough about that. Um, let's go ahead and we're going to touch on these next couple of things pretty quickly. I think by now a lot of people are pretty aware of at least two of the three that I'm going to share. And the first is that Ricky is still out. Uh, he posted, he shared an Instagram post and basically discussed this and didn't have a whole lot of detail to say. We've been keeping tabs of this over the last couple of weeks and that's my intention until basically he comes back and even then, you know, just kind of like seeing what's it going to continue to be like for him. But as of right now, Ricky is still out. He's not competing. He's, it sounds like he's in good health, but there's good health and then there's competition health, uh, so to speak. And it doesn't sound like he is ready for competition health or he's not up to competition level. Uh, but obviously he seems to be doing fine otherwise. So good to hear that. Glad he's making progress. And I'll keep you guys posted if I hear anything new. Now, the next thing is Ganon Burn Prodigy. And as expected, truthfully, as expected, when this kind of all blew up, 
I, I basically said, hey, this is probably going to come to a quiet resolution. And it pretty much did. A couple outlets have already shared, but from everything that I have heard and seen, it sounds like Gannon is going to fulfill his, uh, his contract this season. And that's basically it. There are some other details in there, but there's no big crazy thing. Um, if it was in fact Discmania, I did not fact check if it was in fact Discmania and I've uh, been busy with work, so I, but I haven't seen anybody say that it uh, definitely was, but people assumed given that Simon left shortly before the season started and they had all this money. So it's possible they were the ones throwing the money at Gannon. Um, but there are some there are some guesses out there that Gannon uh, will, <laughs> there's actually two schools of thought that I've seen. One, he's going to leave at the end of the year and go to Discmania or whoever can throw the most money at him, which might be Discmania. I, I just really hope he doesn't go to Discraft. Um, Discraft is what Innova used to be. And when I started playing disc golf, I, um, you know, everybody was already on Innova and it was one of those where it was like, well, I mean, it is what it is, but I now see why some, you know, back then people were annoyed with it. Everybody just went there because now it's like, Whenever someone leaves a sponsorship, like nine out of 10 times, it feels like they're going to Discraft. And it's like, there's, they just have a lot of money and they can sell discs really well. So I don't blame them for going there because they can, you know, make a lot of profit off of it, both the company and the golfer. But it would just be nice to see someone go somewhere different. And so Discmania would be really cool. Speaking of Discmania, they just came out with Ella Hansen's first uh, signature series disc, Swirly S-Line FD. Super happy for her. Um, I hope she continues to do really well with them. But back to the whole Gannon thing. Some people think he's going to leave, possibly go to Discmania. That would uh, make the most sense. But then there are other people who think like they're going to be spend the rest of the year, they're going to work on repairing this relationship, maybe work on a couple other things, and that they're going to throw Gannon like a four or six year massive contract that's going to keep him around. And basically, uh, the whole mentality there is they're going to make him an offer that he can't refuse, which would be really smart. Uh, obviously, uh, Prodigy has a, a lot of young players, ironically enough, a lot of Gannon's friends, who are doing really well this season. You have Isaac Robinson's already won. Uh, he won um, his first, uh, it was it was a champion, it was the Champions Cup, the first major, that's what it was. Um, his first major ever and his first tournament win of the season, I believe at least on the Pro Tour and that kind of thing. And then you have Alden Harris this past weekend at the Santa Cruz Masters Cup at De La Viega who almost won, went into a playoff with Greg Varsby. Uh, a little bit more detail on that later. So Prodigy has a really good young core, young core group of MPO players. And so it would make sense to keep your best one. So uh, as things kind of come to a resolution, we'll probably touch on this again later in the year, probably closer to the season, unless something surprises us this summer. But I'm not expecting that. I think that's just too quick of a turnaround for kind of everything that happened. And really, um, if he was ready to leave at the beginning of the year, I doubt he'd be ready to stay by the middle of the year. Probably has to finish up his season, see what kind of discs you know they might be able to come up, come out for, come out with for him. English is hard sometimes, guys. And then, you know, go from there. So that's basically that. Now, the next thing I want to touch on, and this is something that personally I think is the coolest of these three things. Excuse me. The coolest of these three things, and that is Kristen Tatar 
Let me make sure I say the number right. Kristen Tatar went up four points in her in the recent uh, PGA rating update. She's up to 991. 991. Congratulations to Kristen Tatar. Super, super happy for her. However, I don't believe this is the highest an FPO player has ever been. If I remember correctly, um, Paige Pierce a couple years ago, about two, two, three years ago, um, was 997. I think it was 997. And me and everybody else thought that she was going to be the first player, first FPO player to uh, hit 1,000 rating, uh, rating. But it did not happen. Paige has, uh, since dro- has dropped since then. But Kristen is literally knocking on the door. She doesn't look like she's going to be slowing down anytime soon. Now, I'm not going to dive into all the details of the rating because truthfully, it's pretty complicated. And I don't even know that there's anyone who completely understands the entire system, even the PDGA. But a couple things that affect rating, and this is something to keep in mind as we're watching Kristen play over the next month or two, because it's a it's a monthly rating update. So we won't see anything change until next month. So she has a couple tournaments in between then starting with the OTB Open. And so um, one of the things that you want to that we need to focus on is course difficulty, field difficulty and conditions. Now, there are other things involved in ratings. I'm not saying those are the only three things involved, but as viewers, it it benefits us to watch Kristen uh, as we're watching Kristen play, like considering the course, how challenging is it? What's the field doing? how is the field competing? Who is there? You know, she's going to get a higher rating at a Disc Golf Pro Tour event. Let's say the OTB Open, uh, that that course that they kind of remodel every year is, you know, this week it's Disc Golf Pro Tour, but next week it's an A tier. Well, she can shoot the same score, but she'll have a lower rating at the A tier. And that's a lot, that has a lot to do with competition and the, the quality of the event. And so, that's something to consider with that in regard to competition. So it helps her get closer to that rating when the top FPO players perform and then also, or just play really, but also perform well because the next part is condition. So wind, rain, snow, um, those things all play a factor, just general weather conditions play a factor in the rating. And the reason that is, is it's a lot harder to play in high winds and rain than it is to play on a sunny, clear day. That's like perfect. You know, we, we've all experienced that perfect round, that perfect day for disc golf. And it's really easy to score well on those days. And so the your rating is going to be affected a little bit less on those kinds of days. But if you're having, um, you know, cold temperatures like they've had at Waco in years past, uh, wind like they've had at Jonesboro in years past. I mean, Jonesboro opened this pat a couple weeks ago. The first two rounds were really common. They scored so well, but nobody scored that well in the final round when there was a lot of wind. And so obviously wind makes a course tougher. That's also going to drive ratings up a little bit more. So all these things come into play. And obviously Kristen needs to perform well in any condition on any course. Your rating won't go up if you don't consistently play well. So super excited to to see her performing and doing all of that. I hope that uh, things continue uh, to work out for her in that regard, um, I would love to see her be the first 
the first thousand rated FPO player. Her story is really cool. She learned disc golf several years ago, had some friends, and it's just watching her journey. I remember a couple years ago when it was just this female European player coming over and performing well, like finishing top five, top 10, but not winning consistently. And just seeing her on this upward trajectory has been awesome. It's been a joy to watch. And so uh, watching her be the first thousand rated would be awesome. Things would be crazy, but that's basically all I wanted to say about that. Now we'll go ahead and we will transition to talking about um, some of the disc golf questions that you guys had. So let's go ahead and let's start with the first one. All right, so the first question that we had was about flight numbers. Now, a few years ago, I made a video talking about uh, speed, glide, turn, and fade. And so I will definitely uh, recommend you guys go check those videos out if you have some questions about flight numbers. But I will go ahead and uh, touch on that here again as well because it's a really good question. Now, before I get into all the details of what each of the four categories are, there's a little bit of a caveat to all this. So if you don't know this already, this will help you, especially if you've been a little bit confused with some flight number ratings. So first and foremost, the PDGA measures all the discs, but there's rumored that some of their measurements are a little inconsistent. But even more so than that, the flight rating system is 100% unregulated, which means just because, which means a manufacturer, a retailer, whoever is having the disc made, whatever it is, can say whatever flight numbers they want. There is no regulation on what necessarily makes a seven speed disc a seven speed and a 13 speed disc a 13 speed. Now, that being said, there's no regulation, but the court of public opinion has sort of fallen in line with some of this. And a lot of discs are made similarly. So one of the things that I've noticed is that um, every disc that I have found pretty much has at least a 1.1 centimeter rim or bigger. And so if you want to kind of have a numbering system in your head to kind of help, um, 1.1 is one speed, 1.2 is two speed, 1.3 is three speed, so on and so forth. 1.9 would be a nine speed. 2.0 would be a 10 speed, 2.111, 2 2.2, 12, 2.3, 13, 2.4, 14. There are a handful of 14 speed discs out there. So it's unregulated, but the general consensus of what I have seen is that the speed number reflects that the, the wing measurement or the, or the rim or the, the width of the rim. Wow, I can't talk. It met the speed seems to correlate to the width of the rim. Now there's some inconsistency in this. And if I pull a disc right here, so we have uh, a Firebird right here, right? So if I'm looking at the Firebird, you can, this one, it's a little less than, nor, than some other discs, but so on the rim, you have the very point here where your finger would obviously be uh, wrapping around to the to the edge of the rim. Then you also have where the rim touches the flight plate on the inside. Now a lot of discs kind of bev or um, I believe it's concave, so they they're kind of angled out, and that kind of is in my in my understanding helps the disc come out a little bit cleaner. So the the reason that's a big deal 
is because if it's angled down here, so if like, if this is the, the disc and the angle of the rim is kind of like this, sorry, my hand is in a really weird angle here, it's kind of like this, the measurement here at the top of my wrist is going to be shorter to the wing or to the edge of the rim than my fingertips. It's gonna be shorter, so it's gonna be longer from here. So when the PDGA is measuring these, it might have a smaller rim width because they measure from the top, but then it might have a, uh, a wider rim width if they measured then from the bottom. So this is something to take into consideration and here's why. I've seen this explicitly, oh, this is going to all fall. I've seen this be an explicit problem. Where is, where is that disc right here? With the Guadalupe, it is listed as a seven speed disc. The rim measures at a 1.9. And so um, there's a little bit of that inconsistency here. I myself do not own a pair of calipers to measure, but I imagine the 1.9 is from the bottom where the flight plate is to the edge of the rim because it is not that wide looking on the top. So that's just something to keep in mind. Now, how does this all relate to speed? Well, the, the rim width relates to speed most directly because it, it that those measurements and everything correlate, but also we see faster discs have wider rims and flatter, flatter um, profiles. So that's why that correlates there. Now, here's what speed means, and sorry for the roundabout uh, conversation there, but I wanted to get that stuff out of the way so that everything else makes sense. The fact that everything's unregulated. Um, speed, yes, is how fast the disc can travel, but also think about speed as the power needed or the power you need to generate to throw the disc to get the rest of the flight characteristics, to experience the true flight characteristics. So a faster speed disc requires more power or speed to see the glide, the turn, and the fade. So think of it as like a prerequisite. So if you're throwing a destroyer, five glide, minus one turn, three fade, you will not experience that flight necessarily on a generic brand new destroyer, not some Halo Calvin destroyer that's super beefy out of the box, but just a fairly normal destroyer, you won't experience those flight numbers unless you get the disc up to speed or faster. If you are a uh, seven speed arm and you go and throw a destroyer, you'll still get some flight out of it. It's not just gonna be a complete meat hook, but you're probably going to experience something more like a 12, uh, you'll be throwing a 12 speed, but you won't be getting it up to 12 speed. So the glide may be more of a three or four. There probably won't be any turn if you throw it flat. And the fade may be more of like a three and a three to four fade with zero turn. So it's gonna fly a lot beefier for you. Um, and so just kind of think of speed there then as the power you need to generate to get the desired flight out of the disc. Now, there are a lot of caveats to this because there's you know Anheuser angles, there's beating in a disc, there are different runs of discs. I mean, destroyers have a lot of different uh, flight characteristics based on the run, um, specialty, specialty made destroyers, the weight, 
that's a completely other thing that we haven't even talked about. So, but this is just general principles to help you guys when you're picking out discs. So speed, generally speaking, is how much power you have to generate to get the desired flight characteristics. Glide. Just like I said, there was no regulation for the flight, uh, the flight numbers. It's really hard to determine glide because glide is basically just loft. And some discs are naturally going to be loftier than other discs. But if a disc doesn't get up to speed, it's not going to have that spin, that uh, rotation. So it's not going to be able to generate that loft. And so glide is sort of a finicky thing. And it could also really just depend on the thrower, how much spin you have in on your throw. Um, can affect that as well but basically think about glide as like being able to carry the disc down the fairway really really far um ideally so like putters typically have you know actually lower glide like you'll see putters with one two three uh four glide is a lot of glide for a putter and then you have something like the glitch which has seven glide um, and this thing can, is so slow but it just stays in the air all the time Definitely with uh, the way it's made and all of that, it sort of works uh, works that way. To have it, it's more it's similar of flight characteristics to an ultimate frisbee. But glide is sort of this abstract thing that can be different for each player um, based on the mold and based on their throwing capabilities and also how you throw it. If you throw a disc nose up, especially a putter, it's going to glide a little bit more because you're getting more air under the disc. Whereas nose down, it's going to glide less. So some things to keep in mind there. But that, generally speaking, glide is just the loft or lift of the disc as it travels through the air uh, and how long it can stay up, kind of basically even at slower speeds. Now, turn and fade have a little bit more concrete uh, concreteness to them, we'll say. Uh, but even then... It's a little finicky, especially because some manufacturers have started implementing 0.5s into their rating system with that, um, which I just think is like, I get it in conversations. People talk about like, oh, it's kind of between uh, a nine and a 10 speed. But I think that's people should reserve that for conversations and not actually be in the flight numbers because that's basically just saying we don't really know. And it's like, what do you mean you don't know? You made the disc. So, <laughs> so I wish more manufacturers didn't do 0.5, but a couple of them do. Anyway, turn relates to a disc's high speed stability. So that's why you normally see discs turn in within like the first 50 to 60% of their flight. That's because that's when the disc is at its highest speed, highest velocity. And so turn relates to that high speed stability. And so for righty backhand, that's what we're going to talk here. Righty backhand turn means how much the disc will drift to the left. Now we're talking about flat throws. So no hyzer, no anhyzer. A zero turn disc will generally fly straight. Minus one is going to have a little bit of turn or movement to the right. Minus two will be a little more exaggerated. Minus three more exaggerated, so on and so forth. And I believe the max is minus five. Now a disc with minus five turn is going to turn really quickly. It has very low high-speed stability. So um, basically, if you don't want it to turn, you have to throw it really slowly, and then you don't get much of a flight out of it. Now, on the flip side, 
there are disks with positive turn. And so what that means is like, if zero is perfectly straight and minus one means it kind of goes to the right, uh, positive would mean that the disk is not going to turn whatsoever. It is actually highly turn resistant. It has very high, high speed stability. Um, it's not going to move off the line that you throw it on and that you release it on uh, regardless of the power. So a disc like this would be the tilt. Where is it right here? The tilt. Another disc, I believe the captain's Raptor from uh, Discraft. I believe Paul Yulberry's Raptor. Um, that disc I'm fairly certain has positive turn. Not a lot of discs out there have positive turn. I think the Malta when it first came out said like one turn and then people threw it and was like, no, this thing does not have positive one turn. If anything, it's zero, possibly even minus one. It was not that overstable. Um, but yeah, that's basically turn. And then fade is what most players are familiar with. Fade, think about it as like low speed stability in a sense. Basically, what does your disc do when it slows down? So turn relates to that high speed fade is the low speed and for writing backhands we're most familiar with it as how much is the disc going to go left now here's where glide kind of comes in comes into play again first off um, there's a high correlation in my experience between discs with high glide and high turn um, or moderate turn i should say a disc with like minus five turn can have high glide but it's really hard to get that balance because the disc is so flippy but a disc with minus one or two turn typically i have found can have pretty good glide on it because that understability and glide work together to keep the disc aloft the same thing with fade um, that low speed stability so zero fade means the disc is normally going to finish pretty straight maybe just of touch to the left this is righty backhand one fade a little bit further to the left two fade a little bit further so on and so forth now the thing to keep in mind is that fade is not just how far left it's going to go because that's not always the case fade is a another way of thinking about how quickly it will crash so if i go and throw this mint bullet which has zero turn and one fade this disc will finish to the left if thrown flat, but it's going to go pretty softly. We'll almost say it has this sort of forward fade because that glide and one fade is not super overstable. So it's not going to dump really fast when thrown flat. It's going to continue pushing and then finish just a little left. Whereas the Firebird with only three glide, zero turn and four fade, when it hit gets really slow, there's hardly any glide. So a firebird's going to dump and really basically like almost look like hyzer into the ground. You'll get some skip play on that. And so the firebird can kind of cross over to the left on righty backhand a good bit, but chances are it's not going to finish flat. It's going to finish on angle. And that's why you see a lot of players actually enjoy throwing those overstable discs and playing off the skip because it's going to crash into the ground on an angle. And so fade is sort of that low speed stability, how quickly it gets to the ground. Um, turn is that high speed stability. What is, what's it going to do when it kind of comes out of your hand in the first 50 to 60% of its flight? 
glide affects those two ratings and how it's going to stay, how well it will stay in the air and how well it will manage wind. And then speed is the power that you need to generate to get all those other characteristics that I just mentioned. And so I hope that addresses the question. I hope that helps you guys better understand flight numbers. Now, something to keep in mind, most manufacturers used to never put flight numbers. Like that wasn't a thing. When the disc came out, it was cool, let me go try it. And then you see how it flies. And then companies like Discraft started putting a one a, a one number flight system with a little bit of a curve. I know Millennium did this too, or still does it. I know Discraft still does it sometimes. They have since adopted the four, uh, the four number flight rating system. But Innova was the one in my knowledge that started doing the four flight numbers. And like I said, everything's unregulated, but if you see the single digit number, typically what it means is like zero is basically like perfectly straight, like won't waver off that line. And everything a little bit more stable than that um, is going to be more overstable. Discs that are negative, if I remember correctly, will be understable. But it could also be that the maybe the rating system starts at 1.0. Man, I, I've, I didn't even think that I was gonna bring the one number rating system up. And so I did not uh, double check on this, but basically that's kind of how that'll go. So just be aware, you won't really run into that a whole lot unless you find an older Discraft disc or an older Millennium disc. A lot of them are adopting flight numbers. And now since so many disc golfers are familiar with discs and their molds, I've actually found more and more manufacturers, especially even on stock runs, but especially on like fancier runs, like not putting flight numbers whatsoever. And you're seeing that a lot more as more signature discs come out, but even stock discs will have like fancy stamps on them or just the regular stock label. And it may not even have the numbers on it. Um, so that's both good and bad. Some manufacturers have never put flight numbers on like mint. Um, mint does not say how this bullet flies on here. It has the plastic, the mold, the run, and the year that it came out, but it doesn't have flight numbers. And so just something to kind of uh, keep in mind, a cool little tidbit uh, historical fact there. Now, the next question had to do with the two meter rule. And I wanted to address this one this week because we had the Santa Cruz Masters Cup in De La Viega, which is in California. And California is pretty much the only state, if not one of a few, that uses the two meter rule. And basically what the two meter rule is, is if your disc gets stuck somewhere at the two meter mark or higher, you take a penalty stroke. So I'm about two meters tall, give or take. I'm probably a little bit shorter than two meters because uh, two meters is not necessarily six feet. I think it's a little bit more than six feet. It might be like six and a half feet or something like that in imperial units and not the metric system. But basically it's in the six foot range, maybe around six and a half feet. So if a disc gets stuck somewhere at the two meter mark and higher, it's a penalty stroke. And you play it from where it is. Think of it like a hazard, a sand trap in a more open course. You take the penalty stroke, but you play from where it is. And so because that rule obviously is not popular in a lot of other places because trees are very prevalent on disc golf courses. But 
I was watching Central Coast Disc Golf CCDG. Shout out, great channel if you haven't checked them out before. They just covered the MPO lead cards at the Santa Cruz Masters Cup, which was just an A tier this past weekend. It's been on tour in the past, but not anymore. And they had uh, Nate Perkins on commentary with Shasta Chris, who's been playing disc golf since the 90s. He's a local to De La Viega and has played that course probably thousands of times at this point. And he was talking about the two-meter rule, I believe, in round three. And he basically said that the reason why De La Viega, Santa Cruz Masters Cup, still uses the two-meter rule is that the course was designed with the two-meter rule in mind. It was designed in a way that if you went over top the trees, you could get lucky, high risk, high reward, but that high risk also has a high penalty. So if you go over top the trees and you don't make it and crash through the trees, by the way, those trees, I believe they said they were oaks, catch a lot of discs. If you don't make it through those trees, you take that penalty stroke, but you play from where the disc ended up, is my understanding. So that's basically the two-meter rule. If you don't play in California, most times you're, you don't have to worry about it. I played a few tournaments, uh, one specific tournament in Texas that used the two-meter rule for one or two years, and people hated it and said it was dumb, especially because the course we were playing on didn't even have a ton of trees. And if a disc did get stuck, it was a really unfortunate throw because it just wasn't a necessary rule. But so most places don't really use the two meter rule, but that's what it is if you hear anyone mention it, especially if you're on the West Coast or a tournament you're looking to sign up for mentions that they're going to play it. Now you'll better understand it. Um, so really interesting rule. I personally am not a fan of it. I just think too many courses um, allow for big air shots. Uh, even some wooded courses, and it's just um, the the trees can already do enough punishment. I don't think it, you have to add a stroke to that. Sometimes the course will already add a stroke if you hit a tree and don't get down the fairway. The last question that I wanted to address is when are you assessed a penalty stroke? And this was a really good question because it seems like some tournaments are always different. So there's a couple classes of like when the penalty stroke will be assessed. So most courses, if you're in water, you will be assessed a penalty stroke. The only time you're not assessed a penalty stroke is if it's casual water. And what that means is that that water is normally not there or maybe like a retention or a drainage ditch, which also means that the water is normally not there. So like if you're playing a rainy round and there's a giant puddle in the middle of the fairway that's normally not there and your disc lands in it, unfortunately, the disc is wet and you have to probably play from where it is or take some, uh, take like a lineup between the disc and the basket and like move backwards because there's an obstacle in the way that you can't play but you're not assessed the penalties. But in most cases, water like lakes, ponds, streams, creeks, uh, oceans. I've played in Florida and there are like bays and oceans nearby. So that kind of stuff will be OB. Another thing that is always OB if you miss a mandatory. Now the PGA changed the mandatory rule uh, two off seasons ago. Um, so last year was the first full season with the new mandatory rule. The mandatory rule used to just be vertically now it's also uh, laterally or horizontally, however you want to say it. So if you miss a mandatory in either one of those directions, 
you're automatically assessed the penalty stroke and you go to the drop zone. Um, so, or, well, depending how it's played, you might proceed to a drop zone or you have to go from where you landed and throw back around the, the uh, mandatory. But I think most cases it is a drop zone if you miss it. Um, that rule has gotten a little fuzzy now. Like it's definitely, you're still assessed a, assessed a penalty stroke, but like the whole explanation of the rule is just a little confusing. But yeah, if you miss a mandatory, you'll be assessed a penalty. Roads. And this is one of the things I was saying, like there are tiers to it because pretty much every case, a body of water will be OB. Mandatory always OB. Roads and sidewalks, most of the time. Champions Cup, the first major over in uh, Appling, Georgia, right outside of Augusta, where Isaac Robinson won. There were multiple roads, technically gravel roads, that went through fairways. Those roads were not OB. Those roads were not OB. They could have been OB, but they weren't. And so in that case, you really want to know, follow the caddy book, follow what the T sign says, what's OB and what's not OB. Um, Generally speaking, you will find roads and sidewalks, and typically you'll see sidewalk and left of sidewalk is OB, same with roads, simply because, excuse me, like I said, my stomach's not been feeling great. Mm. Typically on a T-pad sign or in a caddy book, you'll see left of sidewalk and sidewalk is OB, same with roads, and that's because they don't want you throwing across traffic. That's just a common sense rule. But if you're ever unsure and you're in a tournament, check the caddy book. Make sure you go to uh, the meeting before the tournament starts. And if you're still unclear, ask the TD, the tournament director. If you're playing a casual round, what does the T sign say? Um, you can always add OB. And if maybe you're working on some, some things, you may not want to... Um, focus on necessarily like punching yourself if you land OB if you're working on some things but typically speaking if the sign says something is OB most players play it OB if the t-pad doesn't say something is OB don't play it OB now if you want to add some challenge to a hole or your local club maybe plays a specific hole with OB then you know play it that way especially for scoring sake and, uh, you know, if you're playing a mini or something like that. But those are the main three main reasons why someone would go OB. And then obviously uh, OB lines would be another thing. Now, when are you inbounds? Because that is another big discussion. So you are inbounds in water if you are touching some dry ground. doesn't have to be much, but you have to be touching some dry ground in order to be counted inbounds. Now, a lot of times a stream is not just the water itself that's OB. You'll often have TDs put, for safety reasons, put uh, some string or spray paint to mark OB that is typically wider than just a creek or a stream or something like that, or even a pond. But in the case it's just water, if you have some of your disc touching dry ground, you're safe. And if you're unsure, you ask your card. Now, when it comes to a string or a spray paint, all you need is a sliver of the disc to be touching inbounds. And if I remember correctly, the painted line in disc golf is inbounds. It's outside the painted line. So if you are touching inbounds, even just one blade of grass, 
your inbounds, and so you don't get assessed that penalty stroke. But if it's that close, definitely make sure you check with your card. Um, everyone, you know, needs to be in agreement and and state what whether or not you're going to be assessed that penalty stroke. Remember, disc golf is a self-governing sport. So those are basically all the disc golf questions that I had planned to talk about. I hope those were helpful. I hope I clarify maybe some confusion. Those are really good questions. And especially for new and intermediate golfers, there are things as you are competing more that you may come across that you're really not sure. So I'd highly recommend that you check the rule book. When you're a PGA member, I mean, everyone has access to the rule book, but when you're a PGA member, they'll often send you a copy of the rule book. At least they have in years past when I signed up. So that's something uh, to keep in mind. But yeah, so that is basically flight numbers. When are you OB? And oh, what was the other one? And the two meter rule, which is a cool rule, but I don't like it. Now I wanna go ahead and uh, talk about our disc review. We haven't had one in a couple weeks and I'll go through this one pretty quickly just cause this episode I see is starting to run a little long, but I wanna just uh, put it out there for you guys that if there's a disc that you want me to review, please go ahead and drop it in the comments, message me on Instagram, comment on YouTube, uh, even in your review on Spotify or Apple, if you say, hey, I love the podcast, I'd love for you to review X, Y, and Z. And if you join my Discord, by the way, link in the description, you can also request uh, discs for me to review and I'd be more than happy to do that for you. So let's go ahead and let's get into this week's disc review. This week, we are looking at the Innova Shark. And I know what you're probably thinking, people actually throw that disc? Yes, the Innova Shark is an old school mid-range, not the oldest disc out there, but it is pretty old. A couple years ago, they came out with the 30th edition uh, run with some a really cool stamp on it. The Innova Shark has been around for quite a while, I believe since 1991 or 1992, maybe even older than that, maybe 1990. So old disc, really cool disc. Um, one of the things that I love about this disc is honestly that not a lot of people throw it. And so I started throwing it a, about a week or two ago, so fairly new. I had thrown it in my end of a starter pack, and <clears throat> and I just, uh, you know, I liked it, but it was a 150-gram light blue uh, DX Shark that beat in real quick, and then I never touched it again. And I was talking with some people in a, in a disc golf group I'm, I'm a part of, and they were basically saying like there are some molds out there that when they're put into starter packs, people kind of stop throwing them once they move on from the starter pack because they just think it's like a starter disc when really for Innova, you have the AVR, the Shark, and the Leopard as all really great discs that people can throw. And so let me go ahead and... I got this um, this factory second shark and a couple others from some people from a guy, and really cool. This plastic is what they were calling Rancho Pro, I believe, and so it's a little bit of an old school plastic. Um, so it's a little different than any other real plastic I felt. It's a little bit of a tackier pro style plastic, which is really really cool. But the shark, one of the nice things about the shark is that it has a slight dome. 
There's nothing too crazy about the dome and it's beadless. Now, basically, if you're wanting a comparable hand feel to the shark, think about a rock minus the bead. So a shark's flight numbers are 4402 and a rock is 4403. And I would imagine if I understand those flight characteristics, that extra bit of fade is, um, is uh, what's the word? Basically, you can thank the bead for that extra bit of fade. But I will say that the rock and the shark fly pretty similarly. It's more about hand feel, whether or not you like the bead. Now, I don't mind a bead. I've thrown beadless and beaded mid-ranges and still do. Um, but I, just, I have rocks and I also now have sharks. And so that's been really cool. Um, this disc has a little bit of dome, but it's nothing too crazy. And this disc is a pretty straight flyer. I know it's zero turn and two fade, but remember when we were talking about flight numbers earlier that it's a low speed disc, so it's really easy to get up to speed. And when the disc gets up to speed and faster, it's going to fly pretty straight. And then that four glide is actually pretty good glide, especially with this dome. So the disc is going to carry down the fairway. Zero turn on a brand new disc means it's really not going to veer to the right too much. It might just a hair, depending on how much power you put on it. Now that two fade with the glide, means a couple things. If you throw it flat, the disc is going to go straight and then finish to the left um, noticeably. Not, not like super steep or anything. It will probably still finish flat on the ground. It's not going to, you know, dive into the ground. But if you throw the disc on hyzer, you will have a little bit more noticeable fade. Um, and I have just found that this disc, I like to throw it around the 180 to 280 mark, 170 to 280, because I just feel like I can get uh, good control with it at all different speeds. I have found that it's actually a really fun approach disc for uphill when I would have to really rip on a putter to get it up there and possibly have the putter turn over a little bit, or I can club up and throw this on hyzer. And since it's a faster speed disc on a shorter distance uphill on hyzer, it's going to fade a lot harder than a putter would. And so in, in, in this case, we're dealing with disc selection and choosing um, the kind of flight you want and not the disc. So we're saying what will do what I need it to do. And then you throw that disc, not saying how can I make this disc do that? Because um, a bullet is not going to fly the same as a shark. And so I've really enjoyed throwing the shark for the last couple of weeks. I have noticed that it comes out of my hand um, a little weird sometimes. And I think it's just a unique hand feel. It's not super smooth on the, uh, on the, like it's a smooth rim, but it does have a little bit of a beveled edge there. And so you got to get used to that, especially if you're throwing discs that are a little bit rounder and flatter on the bottom, like a Discmania Origin or something like that, or a Buzz SS. Those are flatter bottoms, but I've really enjoyed throwing the, throwing this disc it's been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to see what else it can continue doing. Um, like I said, I normally, I have a pretty big range of when I throw it, but I normally will throw something like that, depending on the flight, speci more specifically between like the two and 250 mark. Um, if I have to go above 250, or really if I have to go above 270, I may be looking to like, maybe just kind of power down a fairway, unless the shot that I need to make is better executed with a mid-range. But if you wanna go ahead and try out a shark, 
head to otbdiscs.com. They have a couple sharks in stock in multiple plastics. So you can try out this mid-range, especially if you haven't thrown it since you got your Innova starter pack, if you started with an Innova starter pack. And if you use discount code GladiatorDG, you'll save yourself some shipping costs. So go ahead and head to OTB Discs. Thank you so much to Danny and the gang for supporting this channel for coming up on three years and uh, for sponsoring the disc review. All right, the last couple things that I want to talk about are the tournaments that we have coming up. So, or recap and then preview. So let's go ahead and let's recap the Santa Cruz Masters Cup. The Santa Cruz Masters Cup at De La Viega in California is one of the coolest tournaments around, in my opinion. It used to be on the Pro Tour. Uh, it used to be an event that a lot of pros went to. And over the years... It's just been relegated, and there's a couple reasons for that. Mainly, uh, the course is not really suited for the Pro Tour. It doesn't make it a bad course, but as the disc golf game has developed and changed over time, and players just have different skill sets, and you now have fans attending in much higher numbers, it's harder to have uh, spectators at a place like De La Viega, where there's really not a lot of good standing space, and the course is pretty brutal. So uh, we'll get to the scores in a little bit, but to just put into perspective, I think the winning score was somewhere around uh, 12 under, and they played three rounds. So this course is brutal. It's a lot of elevation, a lot of rocks, a lot of cliffs, a lot of trees that will knock your disc down, unforgiving, unforgiving trees, and just some really crazy holes, some holes that are just really unfair. And if you watch the coverage from CCDG, you'll know that I'm talking specifically about hole one. It's a par three and not a single player birdied it all weekend. Not one single birdie, which people were expecting. Oh. People were at least expecting, you know, a drive and a throw in with all the players that were there. But not even that happened. Really tough par three i think it actually averaged like 3.9 i remember hearing that on the round one coverage so i know that was maybe just round one's average but even seeing all the rest of the rounds it doesn't seem like it dropped far below that closer to three it was pretty easy to bogey that hole so this track is really really cool i like it a lot it's got some cool shots they do change things up every year not necessarily not necessarily the holes themselves because that course has been around for 30, 40 years at this point. No, excuse me. Disc golf kind of originated in California. I think that course has been in since the 70s. And they have changed baskets, and I'm sure they've changed some holes over time. They have. Shasta Chris mentioned that, like they've added holes over time. The original course is about 24 holes, and they used to play 24. Now they just played 18 this past weekend. But what I mean is like they made new holes by saying like hole one's tee pad to hole three's basket or and hole five's tee pad to I think it was like hole six's basket or or something like that. Some kind of crazy combinations to change change the shots up a little bit, some mandatories here or there. And yes, the two meter rule was in effect. Overall, I really enjoy watching this because you never know what's going to happen. It's a lot of fun. And if you want, you should check it out on CCDG. 
They do really, really good, uh, good work. The coverage was awesome. And Nate and Shasta just had so much insight into that course. And it was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, I really enjoyed it um, because I've been watching it for several years now. But I also enjoyed it because one of my favorite players ever won. And that is Greg Barsby. So Greg Barsby is one of my favorite players. He won uh, that chance that he won the Masters Cup. Yes, Santa Cruz Masters Cup from, yo, you guessed it, the chase card. So another victory (laughs) this year from the chase card, just not on the Disc Golf Pro Tour. And um, definitely uh, a crazy finish. Unfortunately, because we were only watching the lead card, we didn't get to see most of Greg's round on camera, but they did show him teeing off on hole 18, I believe. Uh, And so that was really cool. So let me go ahead and let me pull up the scores so that we can talk about this. So Greg Barsby won. He shot six under on the final round. Six under to go to a playoff with Alden Harris, who shot two under on the final round. So that's what's just crazy. Like going into round three, Greg was six under on the weekend, two rounds. Alden was 10 under. And Alden only shot two and honestly could have won, but Greg went and had his hottest round of the weekend on the final day. And so it was just um, really cool to watch. They went to two or three, I think it was my three holes, but they just repeated like holes one and two. And so let's go ahead and let's wrap this up. So we had Greg Barsby in first at minus 12, Alden in second at minus 12 as well. They went to the playoff. Tied for third, Cole Rudolin and Andrew Miranda at minus 10. Fifth place, James Proctor at minus 9. Sixth place, Matt Bell at minus 7. Chandler Kramer at, tied for seventh with Austin Hannum, Noah Meinsma, and Gannon Burr at minus 6. Gannon went plus 4 on the final day. Like, that's how, that's how hard this course is, and also that's how unfortunate some of the kicks might be. Now, we, don't have, we didn't have FPO coverage. And and that's unfortunate because first place, Owen Scoggins at plus six. Second place, Katrina Allen at plus nine. And then third place, Sayananda at plus 16. So this course is challenging, unforgivable, really. There were only nine players. Um, and so we'll do all of them. The honorable finish going through this. In fourth place, Amy Lewis at plus 17. Fifth place, Juliana Corver at plus 20. Sixth place, Christine King, old school player, played in the, the 80s and 90s, I believe. And she went plus 24. Violet Main plus 38, tied for seventh with Danny Clyden, who is, a, if I still remember correctly, a Casta Plus sponsor player. And in ninth place, Christy Lewis at plus 51. This is a tough course. Um, you saw MPO players hardly getting under par. Um, And they typically shoot better than FPO players. So this is one of those courses that I think is on every bucket list for for every disc golfer. It's just a matter of getting out there and playing it. So that's the Santa Cruz Masters Cup. Strongly recommend you go check it out on CCDG. Now let's go ahead and let's do a quick preview for the OTB Open. This is an event that's been around for just a few years at this point. I think this is maybe the third year that it's been on tour especially. And it is a really cool course. It's more open. 
there are trees, but it's more open, but it's very long. Um, and so we typically see a lot of rollers out on this course. But if you're confused, like, okay, which course is this one? Jomez had a practice round where the infamous fox pee incident happened and a fox peed onto Nate Sexton's disc. Uh, so that was pretty funny. And then he also proceeded to ace in that practice round, which was also really cool. But the OTB Open is, is a really cool track. They change it up every year, trying to make it better, finding new holes, putting new tee pads in. So it's really cool. The, the whole crew that works on that works on it uh, for basically the whole year, at least half the year prepping it. Um, on the Disc Golf Network, if you're subscribed, there is like um, on tour, I think like episode one from last year or whatever, like it starts with the OTB Open and everything that goes into planning an event like that, which just is really cool. It gives you a lot of insight into all the finer details. But the OTB Open is a really cool track and I'm excited to watch some disc golf this weekend. The Pro Tour is back. So let's go ahead and let's make our grip six picks. It's literally the last day. According to this, I have uh, how much time? Okay, 11 hours, but basically gonna sleep tonight and then gonna do so. I'll do three MPO, three FPO, definitely doing Calvin. And I'm gonna try and change it up. Um, I think Anthony Barella, I really believe in him. I want him to win already. And then we'll pick someone that I haven't picked yet this year. Let's see. Um, man. Okay, I'll go with my boy Jakob Samarov, one of my favorite European players. So I got Heimberg, I got Barella, and I got Samarov. Uh, really fun players to watch. If you haven't checked out Jakob, go ahead and check out his Instagram. Really cool player from the Czech Republic. Now for the FPO division. Um, it looks like I was mistaken earlier. You know, I had seen something that sounded like was interesting. Paul's not going to be at OTB Open because I didn't see his name. And it looks like Kristen is also not there. It's been a crazy week, guys. I haven't uh, checked all that out. So I'm going to go with Katrina Allen because uh, she does really well. I'm also going to go with Ella Hansen and Haley King as my three FPO players um, who tend to play really well on more open courses and can handle wind a little bit better than some other players. But we'll see. Ella of these three, uh, Ella's been the most um, consistent out of these three players. Katrina's been second most, and Haley has her weeks. So hopefully this week is her week, but my picks, Heimberg, Barella, Semerad, Katrina Allen, Hansen, Haley King. So I'm going to save them, and I'm going to put, uh, I think it's a pretty high-scoring course, so I'll put that, and then we'll save that, and then we are good to go. Man, I really enjoyed recording this episode for you all, and I hope you enjoyed it too. As we sign off here, I want to encourage you to teach someone some disc golf this week, whether it's online or in person, taking someone new or just giving them a helpful tip. And make sure you go ahead and play some disc golf this week as well, even with the Disc Golf Pro Tour back. Make sure you hit the course, have some fun, do some field work and putting practice, and 
yeah, guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure you leave a review, like, and subscribe. And until next time, have a great round. Thank you.